Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. How are you? I started off this time. You did. Changing it up. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm excited for uh, things that are coming. Things that are coming that we can't mention yet. Not yet. But they're fun. But keep your eye out for the next week or so. Yeah. In a time frame involving around seven days. (laughs) I was like, seven what? Jelly beans? Yes. That's what my physics professor used to say. He'd be like, seven what? Jelly beans? I hate that. That's like English teachers being like... (laughs) I don't know, can you? Yeah. Like, may I go to the bathroom? Right. (laughs) But yeah, anyway, we're excited to share things with you when we can. And we will soon. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it is Black History Month. Yes, it is. When this comes out, when we're recording, it is not yet, but... Oh, yeah. Well, it comes out on February 1st, so therefore, it's Black History Month. And I wanted to talk about a story having to do with Black History, because, hello important shit you know what i mean and uh this one's important like i know the high level details but i feel like i do not understand the full scope of the story no and i mean the thing with so many of these stories is that we weren't taught about them yeah like there's just so many black stories that are so important to the history of our country that we was either mentioned and then just whitewashed or completely just erased altogether. And like, this is one of those that like might may have been mentioned in your schooling, but was not taught. I mean, like I know that I learned about this like maybe last year, which is yeah. insane because it was the hundred years after it happened. It was like the centennial of the, uh, yeah. of the massacre. Yeah. It's insane. So, I mean, just wanted to talk about it and, you yeah. know, spread the story because you can't have change without awareness, you know? Sure. So anyway, shall yeah. we just jump Let's on just in? Let's just jump in. Let's talk about it. So my sources today were from an interview with Otis Clark, who is actually one of the survivors of the massacre on VoicesOfOklahoma.com. And at the time of the interview, he was actually 106 um, because he was around 16 or 18 at the time of the massacre, which was really insane to listen to him like talking about it firsthand because he was 106. But also uh, a Root article by Jay Connor. Um, there was a great PBS documentary called Tulsa, The Fire and the Forgotten. Um, an article from Smithsonian Magazine from Allison Keys that goes over the typed up firsthand account of the massacre by Buck Colbert Franklin, who was a lawyer in the Greenwood District at the time. Um, so he basically, you know, saw it happening and then went inside and typed it all up and then put it in a drawer and didn't touch this typed up thing until it was found <laughs> like really? so many years later. It was yeah. like one of the only records of it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, not oh like the only one, but we're going to talk about like how, why this story wasn't told for so long. But yeah, this his firsthand account was found like many years after the massacre actually happened. So yeah. And also, uh, I got a bit of information from Wikipedia as well. Of course, we love them. Yeah, I was I was saying earlier when you mentioned how old he was at the time of the interview, I'm like, that is such an insane life. Just like how many events that he was alive for. Oh, yeah. And I thought about the fact that he couldn't even vote until he was in his 60s. Yeah, right? It's insane. That's, yeah. Yeah, and there's there's quite a few survivors that are still alive 
yeah. that are like 107 or like 100 or 105 like they're they're here <laughs> they're kicking yeah that's it's insane unbelievable i know it really is so let's just jump on in so this story takes place in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But before we get into the actual story of the massacre, I want to give us a little bit of historical background. So when the Civil War ended in 1865, the slaves in Oklahoma were emancipated. And in 1866, with the Indian Treaty, these newly freed slaves were given around 160 acres of land. And when Oklahoma became a state in 1907, it was a time of amazing growth. Tulsa was experiencing this huge economic boom because there was a massive oil supply at Red Fork, which was just across the river in Arkansas. And there was also the discovery of another oil well that they called Glenpool. And Tulsa became one of the most oil-rich areas in America. Did you know that? No. I, I oh, had that's interesting. no idea, right? Yeah, what, like, how would you know? Yeah. So... This led to more and more people coming to that area for work. And in 1900, there was about 1,400 people in Tulsa. And 20 years later, the population grew to almost 99,000 people. Oh, my God. Isn't that insane? I don't even know what the math is on that. Right. So much. Big boom. Big boom. Yeah. And this amazing growth was especially prevalent within the black community, which is huge because it was post-Civil War, you know, Jim Crow South, there was segregation and African-Americans were living in a constant oppressive reality. But the black citizens of Tulsa were figuring it out despite the system that was rigged against them. And they were actually able to organize an entirely black-owned district, which was the Greenwood District. Oklahoma had the most independently run black towns of any state in the country. It wasn't just one boulevard. It was a network of black communities that supported the Greenwood District. And Greenwood was one of the wealthiest communities in the country. Really? Not just, like, in Oklahoma, in the country. So there were people who had oil wells, there were two hotels, a bank, two black newspapers, two movie theaters, grocery stores, schools, churches, nightclubs, dentists' offices, medical centers, and they were all entirely black-owned. Many black families and freedmen settled in Tulsa's Greenwood District, which became a hub for a larger black population in the region. And because of this land ownership, there were a bunch of smaller black communities who would come to Greenwood to spend their dollars, which made Greenwood grow and flourish even quicker. So for the next 13 years, the Greenwood District flourished, and because of this success, it was coined Black Wall Street by leading black educator, author, and advisor to several U.S. presidents, Booker T. Washington. But with this success and growth within the black community, it only worsened the feelings of white people toward the black community. So following World War I, the epidemic of racial violence was given the title Red Summer by James Weldon Johnson of the NAACP, which was the summer and fall of 1919. And it had long been the case that acts of violence against Black people everywhere in the U.S., not just the South, were rarely punished, which meant that white people weren't really afraid to carry out these acts of violence because there weren't any repercussions. And there were a couple big indicators of the growing disdain from white people toward the black community. And that stemmed from, one, 
400,000 black men served in the armed forces at the time, and many of them in combat units. So they had this experience of being given a gun and being told, go shoot the enemies of the U.S., and then they come back to the United States, and they're not willing to really go back to this subordinate status that they had before, and white people sensed that. The second thing was the demographic shift, which was when African Americans shifted out of the rural South and into the cities in the North and in the Midwest, which was only accelerated by the demand for workers during World War I. And these sudden surges of African Americans into communities and into jobs created all kinds of new tension, and many white people in these communities felt competition and threat to their positions. And also, around this time, the KKK was having a resurgence. So violence against Black people at this time was not unheard of. Although it was incredible that these you know, Black communities and Greenwood were flourishing. I had no idea that this even happened, you know? Yeah, I only found out about this in the past two or three years. But I'm actually, I was, I'm actually really interested in like the technical details of how they did it. Like if it's segregated, where they were obviously still allowed to own their own businesses and such. But like, what were the specifics of the law that allowed them to do that? And like, I don't understand like how they picked this one or. No, it, it had to do with the land ownership that these freed slaves oh. were given. So they were given 160 acres of land, which then, you know, turned into these black communities. So at least from what I understand of Tulsa, there were different, you know, obviously areas of the city, like let's say downtown was more predominantly white and, you know, mostly segregated as far as black people. Like they couldn't really own businesses over in like the downtown area, at least I think that's how it went. But Greenwood, because they owned that land, they were able to make this community. And it flourished because the surrounding black communities came and supported it. So it it grew into its own, like, its own city, essentially. Right. I'm just, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I'm curious of the intersection with the white government, I'm assuming, of the town and the state. I mean, they got the plot of land, but do they have their own police force or or firefighters? Like, I'm just thinking of, like, the other things you would need for a self-sustaining community. It seems like they have just about everything except for, like, those two pieces. Right. I don't think that they had a police force or firefighters of their own because they were a part of Tulsa. It was just the Greenwood District. So, you know, Tulsa had a police force and a fire force, whatever. But they had everything else that they could have, essentially. Right. But that being said, white people didn't like that. You know, they were not happy that there was a thriving black community in their city. They were jealous of the success because many black people and black families found great success and and riches because of their status in this community. So it caused great tension. And so we're going to get into that. But so Smithsonian Museum curator Paul Gardulo said it was the frustration of poor whites not knowing what to do with a successful black community. And in coalition with the city government, were given permission to do what they did meaning the Tulsa Race Massacre. And we're going to get into exactly how it started right now. It was Monday, May 30th, 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A 19-year-old black boy named Dick Rowland, who was a shoeshine at the bottom floor of the Drexel building at 319 Main Street, went into the elevator to use the restroom on the top floor since it was the only restroom for black people in that area. The Drexel building was four stories tall, 
and Renberg's department store occupied the first two floors, with offices and small businesses upstairs. The building was probably quiet that morning. It was Memorial Day, and most downtown stores, including Renberg's, were closed, and it was also raining, which dampened the holiday activities, including a parade. So Roland entered the elevator with 17-year-old white elevator operator Sarah Page. It's not entirely known what happened in the elevator, but either Roland tripped into the elevator and grabbed her arm to steady himself, he stepped on her foot and he touched her arm on accident, or I've also seen that Roland stepped on her foot and she hit him with her purse and he grabbed her arm to stop her. Either way, physical contact was made, which led to Sarah screaming, most likely just from being startled. After hearing a scream come from the elevator, a white store clerk comes rushing out to see a black man running from the building, and when he went over to the elevator, he found Sarah Page, who was still inside in a quote-unquote distraught state. Now, because of this, the clerk assumed Sarah had been assaulted and called the police. Although this interaction was not malicious, Dick Rowland was not going to stick around to be met by the police because he knew the worst would be assumed about the interaction, so he had run from the Drexel building to his mother's house in the Greenwood district of Tulsa to hide out. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's no way he would have stuck around to see what happened there. I mean... Yeah, fuck no. Yeah. The police arrive on the scene and talk to Sarah, and there's no written account of her statement that has ever been found. But apparently she told the police that Roland had grabbed her arm and nothing more, but still the police opened an investigation. And the next morning, Tuesday, May 31st, the police find Roland at his mother's house on Greenwood Avenue, arrest him and take him to Tulsa City Jail for questioning. He explained to the police that although he put his hand on her, he was not trying to hurt her in any way. Although by 3 p.m. that day, the Tulsa Tribune, which was the white-owned daily newspaper, reported in a front-page story with the headline, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator. This article... Wait, this is like a call to action in their headline? Yeah, and it gets worse than that. That's just the first one. Yeah, this article stated that Dick Rowland had tore Sarah Page's clothes and scratched her face and then alluded to attempted rape. It supported the fact that he should be charged with attempted assault. And according to some witnesses, the same edition of the Tribune included an editorial supporting a potential lynching of Roland that was titled To Lynch Negro Tonight. So that was the call to action. I mean, both were really terrible, but... This paper was known at the time to have a quote-unquote sensationalist style of news writing. How about murderous? Yeah, it's absolutely horrendous to think about. And all original copies of that issue of the paper have apparently been destroyed. I wonder why. And all relevant pages are missing from the microfilm copy. So this was a direct call to action to murder this boy, which is so horrifying to think about. But about nine months before this, a white boy named Roy Belton had been accused of murdering a white taxi driver and was also kept in the Tulsa County Courthouse, where where Dick Rowland is now being kept. But when news broke about his story, Roy had been taken from his cell in the courthouse by a mob of white men and was lynched as an act of vigilante justice. So news of this lynching was extremely terrifying for the black community because if this white boy can be lynched then that means that the black community was far from safe. Wait, they lynched a white person? Yeah, Roy Belton. I didn't know he was white. 
Did you yeah, say that? Yeah, I did say that. Oh. Yeah, he was a white boy. I missed that. That's, Jesus Christ. Yeah, clearly so, like, there's... the law is not applying, I guess, to anyone. No, yeah, and that's that was the point, was, like, none of these lynchings or this violence against people, I mean, mostly black people, was being punished at all. And now the black community is seeing that this this violence against this, you know, white boy isn't being punished either. And it's really scary to think about what that means for, you know, the black community. Absolutely. Police were also criticized for not doing enough to keep him safe while being held. And now they had Dick Rowland in a very similar situation. So because of this criticism, they knew they needed to do more this time around. So they moved Dick Rowland to the more secure jail on the top floor of the Tulsa County Courthouse. How did they get Roy Bolton out of the jail? I'm assuming he's locked in a cell. Did they assault the police officer on the front and just like take the keys and walk out? Or did they have help from him? I don't have specific details as to how they got him out, but I don't think it's very far-fetched to, to think that someone just turned a blind eye and let them in, you know? Yeah. Or he just wasn't in a very secure part of the jail that, that like wasn't under very high supervision and they were able to just come in and get him, which is why they moved Dick Rowland to the top floor, which was the more secure area Gotcha. because of this criticism. But that didn't stop a mob from forming around the courthouse where Roland was being held, especially with these rumors of a possible lynching brought on by the newspaper. Hello. So by 7.30 p.m., hundreds of angry white men are outside the courthouse demanding to be shown Dick Roland. Sheriff Willard M. McCullough stationed six of his officers to the roof of the courthouse with rifles. He disabled the courthouse elevator and he positioned more officers on the top floor with orders not to open the door for anyone. So at around 8.20, three white men from the mob, quote unquote, somehow get inside the courthouse and the sheriff immediately gets them out and then addresses the screaming mob and tells them that there isn't going to be a lynching and they need to leave. But despite these efforts, by 9 p.m., the mob had grown even bigger and there were 400 angry white Tulsans outside the courthouse. With word of this growing mob and the possible lynching, the black citizens of Tulsa gathered at Gurley's Hotel in Greenwood to come up with a plan because they know that Dick Rowland is innocent and if they don't do something, he will almost definitely end up dead. The World War I veterans want to gather guns and go down to the jail to protect Roland, and the business owners want to be as peaceful as possible because they don't want to do something that might threaten their businesses that they've worked so hard for. But a group of the World War I vets decide to go down to the jailhouse to offer their protection. This is not going in a good direction. No. This is... But I mean, uh, what else? Yeah, I mean, what what are you going to do? There's really no good options. No, definitely not. I mean, it's bad all around. Yeah. So these World War One vets are turned away when the sheriff assures the men that Dick Rowland is safe and no one is getting inside the courthouse. Also, he tells them that them being there is only going to make things worse. So the men go back to the Greenwood District. Each week, I speak to inspirational people. Each one of them has been on their own remarkable journey. They've all chosen to share their stories with one aim that if people can relate and get comfort from it, if it can help someone. As one of my guests said, there's so much going on in the world. We should be focusing on helping one another and 
making each other better. Each one is a superhero, not because they have special powers, it's because in spite of what they've gone through, they keep on going. I find them remarkable. Please listen to Chatterholic and hear their stories. Yeah, I was going to say, if you stand there with guns, you're just, like, inviting people, someone to shoot at you. Yeah, and like, but... I understand that, but... It's just not... What do you do? Yeah, exactly. It's not fair in any way. No. No. Uh, so, having seen the armed black men, the white, angry mob outside the courthouse becomes enraged, and many of them decide to leave the courthouse and get guns of their own. So, many of them went home to get their own guns and others attempted to get guns by robbing the National Guard armory. So with everything going on, the National Guard was prepared for something like this because they they knew what was coming. So Mayor James Bell of the 180th Infantry Regiment called the commanders of the of the three National Guard units in Tulsa who ordered all the guard members to put on their uniforms and report quickly to the armory. And when a group of whites arrived and began pulling at the grating over a window... James Bell went outside to confront the crowd of 300 to 400 men, and he told them that the guard members inside were armed and prepared to shoot anybody who tried to enter. But that wasn't going to stop them, because I'm sure almost all of these men had guns of their own at home, so they also went home to get their own weapons. At the courthouse now, the crowd had swollen to nearly 2,000 men, and most of them were armed. Oh my god, this is going to turn into a war. Yes, it's really bad. Hearing of this, a group of about 75 black men from the Greenwood District, also armed, decide to once again go to the courthouse to offer services and protection to the sheriff at around 10 p.m. And again, the sheriff turns them away, but at this point, everyone is outside the courthouse, and they're all armed. All it takes is one person to shoot. Yeah. And this is going to go... Like, thousands of people are going to die in, like, minutes. One white man approached Obi Mann, one of the black World War I veterans, who was carrying their army-issued revolver, and he told him that he needed to give him the gun. Meaning, the white man told him he needed to give me the gun. And this veteran replied that he was going to use it if he needed to. So, what followed was a struggle for this revolver, and that's when a shot rang out. Yep. No one knows who fired the shot or if it was an accident, but this was when all hell broke loose. For the next few seconds, a firefight broke out as the white men started firing on the black men and the black men returned fire. Within just a few moments, 12 people were dead, some black and some white, and at that point, the group of black men started retreating toward Greenwood. But now, the mob of white men followed them, and looted stores along the way, looking for more weapons and ammo. The gunfight continued across the Frisco train tracks and into Greenwood, and along the way, bystanders, many of whom were leaving a movie theater or walking down the street, were caught off guard by the mobs and were either fired on and, like, shot down, or they fled. Because now black people anywhere became targets. Otis Clark, who survived the massacre, recalled in an interview that he and his friend were at the funeral home just over the Frisco train tracks, and as soon as they heard the shooting start, they knew the black community needed to get out of there. But as he and his friend went outside, there were white men in a building across the tracks who were on the roof with guns, and they got shot at, and his friend's hand was shot 
and the two of them had to run, but when Clark ran a few blocks up to his house, it had already been set on fire. So the entirety of Greenwood is just in chaos. People are getting shot at left and right. There are bodies in the street and now businesses and homes are on fire. White men in cars started driving into Greenwood and shooting at people drive-by style. And according to the Oklahoma Historical Society, some in the mob were deputized by police and instructed to get a gun and get a N-word. They were instructed by the police? Yes. Many of these black citizens had no idea what was going on, so they just had to run and hide during the all-out chaos of people being shot and killed, stores being looted, and white rioters throwing lit oil rags into several buildings along Archer Street, igniting them. In some instances, business owners or people trying to protect their homes would return fire. George Monroe, one of the survivors, remembers... He was a young boy at the time, and his mother panicked as she saw four white men with lit torches walking toward their house, and four men barged into their home, walked right past the bed and straight to the curtains in the house, lit them on fire, and left. After the curtains were lit, everything obviously caught on fire, and it resulted in their house burning down entirely. And this was the case for many, many Tulsans, black Tulsans at this time. Amid the chaos, at around 11 p.m., members of the National Guard unit began to assemble at the armory to organize a plan to subdue the rioters. Several groups were deployed downtown to set up guard at the courthouse, police station, and other public facilities. Guards were stationed as protection, but only around the neighboring white communities. I'm disgusted, but not surprised. No, I mean, it's it's so shocking, but... I don't know what to say. Like, it's just horrifying. I can't imagine the fear. Yeah, it's I, a war zone. I, it's, it's an absolute war zone, and I, I truly can't imagine the fear. The National Guards, who were sent into Greenwood, were there to take any black citizens they came across to detention centers. What? They're pulling people off the street and putting them into detention centers. Explain What? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, like, maybe... It's good that they're not going to be shot at, but also why are they being put in detention centers? Like, I'm, I don't know how to wrap my head around this. Like, I don't know what to think. Yes. At around 1 a.m., the white mob continued setting fires, mainly in businesses on Archer Street at the southern edge of Green, of the Greenwood District. Black people were doing anything they could to stay safe. Many of them tried hiding and many of them tried to run. Many families took refuge at the Vernon AME Church on Greenwood Avenue, and they hid in the basement until a mob set fire to this church as well. But by some miracle, the basement survived the fire, and those taking shelter in the basement survived as well. By 4 a.m., an estimated two dozen Black-owned businesses had been set ablaze. Some reports claimed firefighters tried to put out the burning buildings, but were threatened by the white mobs with guns. Others say firefighters sided with the white mob and didn't enter Greenwood to put out the fires in the first place. And now this is a quote from Bucklebear's first-hand account. He said, I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted, and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling 
upon the top of my office building. Down East Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top, and then another and another and another building began to burn from their top. Smoke ascended the sky in thick black volumes, and amid it all, the planes, now a dozen or more in number, still hummed and darted here and there with the agility of natural birds of the air. The sidewalks were literally covered with the burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they had come from, and I knew all too well why every burning building first caught from the top. I paused and waited for an opportune time to escape. Where aware is our splendid fire department with its half-dozen stations? I ask myself, is the city in conspiracy with the mob? So what was happening was airplanes carrying white assailants, fired rifles, and dropped fire you know, bombs onto buildings, homes, and these fleeing families. Wait, is this part of the National Guard, or did the rioters get planes? So I don't know exactly where these airplanes came from. Some people think that they were privately owned planes. It's possible they were... In the 20s? I don't know. I mean, it's like, like he's saying, like, it's possible that the city is in conspiracy with the mob. It's, I mean, it wouldn't be... The police deputized them. Right, exactly. So was it the National Guard airplanes? I don't know. Like, it's possible. (laughs) I'm not saying it was, but it could have been really easily. And they were literally dropping bombs on buildings and setting fire from the air. Franklin also reported seeing multiple machine guns firing at night and hearing thousands and thousands of guns being fired simultaneously from all directions. So by 9.15 a.m. on June 1st, Charles Barrett of the Oklahoma National Guard arrived by a special train with 109 troops from Oklahoma City for backup. Barrett declared martial law at 11.49 a.m., and by noon, the troops had managed to suppress most of the remaining violence. The rampage lasted an estimated 16 hours, finally coming to an end on the evening of June 1st. But the fires raged for two full days. Thousands of black residents had fled the city and another 4,000 people had been rounded up and detained at various detention centers. Under martial law, the detainees were required to carry identification cards. What is this, Nazi Germany? That's what it sounds like. I mean, I don't know. When martial law was finally lifted on June 4th, 1921, still as many as 6,000 Black Greenwood residents were being held at three local facilities, the Convention Hall, which is now known as the Tulsa Theater, the Tulsa County Fairgrounds, which was then located about a mile northeast of Greenwood, and McNulty Park, which was a baseball stadium at 10th Street and Elgin Avenue. More than 35 square blocks of the district was destroyed. 10,000 black people were left homeless and hundreds were injured. The commercial section of Greenwood was destroyed. Losses included 191 businesses, a junior high school, several churches, and the only hospital in the district. The Red Cross reported that 1,256 houses were burned and another 215 were looted but not burned. The Tulsa Real Estate Exchange estimated property losses amounting to $1.5 million in real estate and $750,000 in personal property, which is equivalent to around $33 million in 2020. The exact number of people murdered is unknown, but the Red Cross estimated around 300 people lost their lives. But survivor Otis Clark believed that it was more than that. Many of these bodies are believed to be buried in mass graves in Tulsa. 
and this event is considered one of the single worst incidents of racial violence in American history. There aren't any identities of the men involved in the mass racist mob, but it was thousands of white men in the community. And we know the parts of the leadership of the community were at the very least complicit in what happened. Which is why it's not, it shouldn't be referred to as a race riot, which is what historically it was called. It was called the Tulsa Race Riot. But a race riot, by definition, is a public outbreak of violence between two racial groups in a community, which suggests that the black community was equally to blame for the violence, when in reality, their community was 100% victimized. Yeah, I was like, this is more like a genocide. It's a ma- It was a massacre. Like, it was like, yeah, it's... And this is obviously, we've said it before, and I'll say it again, nervous laughter. Like, I do not think any of this is funny. I'm sickened. I'm sickened? Is that a word? I'm horrified by what I'm saying. But... Yeah, it needs to be told. Yeah, it was a massacre. Um, And despite the horrors of what happened from May 31st into June 1st, no one has ever been charged or tried. Not one person was held accountable. And actually, the blame shifted on the black community, unsurprisingly. After the massacre, there was a grand jury made up of 12 white men that were appointed by the governor, and a total of 27 cases were brought before the court, and the jury indicted more than 85 individuals, but in the end, no one was convicted of charges for the deaths, injuries, or property damage, and the grand jury effectively blamed the massacre on the black community of Greenwood. No one, not a single person, was held accountable ever. No. I mean, like, I get that. So I, it's unsurprising because basically the police are complicit or encouraging. Yeah, deputizing, or part right, of it. Or part of it. You only had white jurors. Right. So you knew what the outcome was going to be. Of course, it was they by design. Probably, the jurors might have themselves been part of the riot. I'm sure they were. You know, I mean, it seems just, as if the entire a, white community was a part of it. Yeah, it's like, it's a joke. Yeah, it is. It's insanely... That this was an actual legal proceeding. Yeah. No one got convicted. No. Yeah. The Tulsa City Commission issued a report two weeks after the massacre where T.D. Evans, who was the mayor at the time, said, Let the blame for this Negro uprising lay right where it belongs on those armed Negroes and their followers who started this trouble and instigated it. So it was very clear how the city of Tulsa felt about the massacre. And, or you know, they were calling it a riot because they're blaming it on the black community. And they straight up, point blank, said it. Of course they did. But... It's just insane to think about that that's actually what happened. The minutes from the city commission meeting as well as the meeting minutes from the Chamber of Commerce from that era have since been unearthed, and it was clear that the city of Tulsa felt immediate shame and embarrassment as well as a desire to try and cover it up since it did not reflect well on on Tulsa. Really? It didn't reflect well? (laughs) Really? Hmm. Right. So after that, Tulsa had resumed business as usual, where the white community continued to grow and prosper. What do you mean? Like buildings are still smoking and we're just going to continue business as usual. Yeah, but that's just the black side. You know, that's how that's how they were looking at it. They didn't care. It, it wasn't their problem. 
But so the white community continued to grow and prosper, but that was obviously not the case for the black community. For decades, massacre survivors and their descendants sought compensation for their losses from city government and insurance companies, but never got anything. And not only that, but the KKK had pretty much taken over Tulsa for three or four years after that. So people didn't even get a real chance to grieve or to hold memorials for those who lost their lives that day. Otis Clark recalled that black people at the time were kind of like prisoners because they had to keep quiet about everything or it would be a risk to their lives. Not only that, but the KKK kept neighboring towns from coming in to help the rebuilding of the black communities. So there was no way to, one, acknowledge it happened, two, rebuild and, you know, heal ever. Like, there was no way that could ever happen because of the way the government treated it and because the KKK was had such a tight hold over the entire community and were killing people. Talk of the Tulsa Race Massacre essentially disappeared for decades because many Black people sensed that it was dangerous to keep talking about it because these survivors had witnessed some of the most heinous murders and violence against their community, and many people were terrified that if the conversation came back up, it would provoke more hostility and damage against them. Many Tulsans didn't learn about the massacre, or at least the truth of it, until around 2001, when a report by the Oklahoma Commission published the first comprehensive and official account of the events. 2001? Yeah, it took seven decades for something to ever surface. That was eight, right? 21. Happened in 21. Yeah. 2001, eight. Yeah, okay, even worse, eight decades for something to ever surface. But this report was thorough and laid out the massacre almost minute by minute. The report also recommended the government of Oklahoma enact a number of restorative measures, including paying reparations to the Greenwood community. But the state of Oklahoma and the city of Tulsa ignored that, which led to lawsuit after lawsuit against the state of Oklahoma and the city of Tulsa for reparations since the city of Tulsa failed to take action to protect its black citizens against the massacre. And according to the report, some of the deputies and uniformed police officers were responsible for some of the burning of Greenwood. They also never did an actual investigation of the massacre to hold anyone accountable for anything. So the black community literally never got justice for this. And in 2005, the Supreme Court declined to take on the case as well, and they made no comment of anything. They didn't even comment? No. They're like, nope, we're just going to continue to ignore that. Wow. Yep. How do you not even say anything? Because... Are you a legitimate body? Right. Of legal proceeding? I think they're just trying to make it go away. They're like, if we never acknowledge this, someone or people will just forget because... You know, the people who survived it will die and their descendants will say that it happened, but we can just say it didn't, you know? That's why it's so important to talk about these things because we the only way to have healing is to acknowledge what happened. That way history doesn't repeat itself. It's just, yeah. ugh, it's disgusting. Like that's the only word I can think of to describe how this was handled. Yeah, I mean, they just tried to gaslight the entire country. Yeah. On May 29th, 
2020, the eve of the 99th anniversary of the event and the onset of the George Floyd protests, Human Rights Watch released a report titled The Case for Reparations in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a Human Rights Argument, demanding reparations for survivors and descendants of the violence because the economic impact of the massacre is still visible as illustrated by the high poverty rates and lower life expectancies in North Tulsa. A hundred years after the massacre, the Greenwood District of Tulsa has yet to recover, as 35% of the Black community in Tulsa lives in poverty. Black people own homes two to two and a half times less than whites own their homes in Tulsa, and Black unemployment is double to whites. The most recent news with reparation lawsuits is on May 19th, 2021, a 107-year-old survivor, Viola Fletcher, her 100-year-old brother, Hughes Van Ellis, and 106-year-old survivor, Lessie Benningfield Randall, testified about their experiences during the massacre and their reparations lawsuit before the House Judiciary Subcommittee. Other plaintiffs include- Hold on. Was that even in the news? I didn't see that. Nobody reported on it? Right. It was the like centennial of this horrific event that happened in I history. Heard nothing about that. Exactly. Literally heard nothing. Yeah. I don't like, I don't, wasn't looking, but I pay pretty good attention to the news. Right. It wasn't reported on because yeah. like it's still a hundred years later and it's just not treated as an important historical event by like our entire country's standard, you know? It's insane. Also, 107? Like, 107. Yeah. And she looks incredible for 107. <laughs> Shut up. She does. Yeah, it's Viola. I mean, these people, like, over 100 years old and have, like, the mental acuity to, like, sit and, like, give great testimony before Congress or it their was subcommittee. So moving. Yeah. It's. It's insane. Yeah. Number one, insane that 107 is, you're even still alive. Right. But to be able to function that well is insane. But also, it's and, heartbreaking. And it's And they never... Wait, so if she's 107, it happened when she was seven years old. Yeah. It's heartbreaking to think about and she that has she has never, ever seen justice. For an entire century. Yes. A hundred years, she has never seen justice. Obviously, the descendants of the people who have never seen justice. And also, we're going to get into this in just a second... The, the bodies of the hundreds of people who were murdered and buried somewhere in Tulsa have never been recovered. Never so been identified. Never been identified, never been, never been found. So you even can't even put their... death count. No, yeah, exactly. You can't even put their bodies to rest. So these families know that their, their family members have been murdered and they can't even bury them. So they can't even put their, their family to rest. It's unimaginable. So over the years, a number of massacre-related lawsuits have been pursued, all of them unsuccessfully. Most prominent was a 2003 federal lawsuit that was tripped up over the statute of limitations. Uh Attorneys believe the outcome of the new suit will be different because it relies on the state's definition of a public nuisance for which there is no statute of limitations. Excuse me? Yeah, that's what they're arguing. They're like, actually, you can't because statute of limitations says... You don't have any rights. What? <laughs> yeah, there's a statute of limitations on for a massacre. A massacre. Good one. And did you say they're charging them for a public nuisance? 
That's with the right. new suit. So the attorneys are saying we ha- there's a good chance that they will be granted reparations because it's a different. They're coming at it from a different angle. So there's no but statute con- of limitations on what the, by the state's definition of a public nuisance. Like I cannot believe that the the thing that they're charging as public nuisance for this. They have to find a case. loophole apparently because nobody will listen or take it seriously or you know acknowledge it. So there has to be some sort of loophole, you know? The historical AME church is the only building standing today, which is a part of the last remaining structure of the 1921 massacre. The residents of the Greenwood District try to keep the memory of Tulsa, of the Tulsa race massacre prominent within the community. Today, many memorials stand out of respect for the memory of what was once Black Wall Street. Many investigations are still underway in the Greenwood District in the hope that more unmarked graves can be found and more victims of the massacre can be identified. In October of 2019, a team of archaeologists with University of Oklahoma were able to reopen their investigation into these mass graves and were able to scan sections of Oaklawn Cemetery with ground-penetrating radar, and there were anomalies in their findings consistent with mass graves. They found three unmarked graves, and they weren't sure at this point if it was actually from the massacre, but they strongly believed that it was. And in July 2020, 99 years after the massacre, archaeology teams finally began digging in Oaklawn Cemetery. But after eight days of no real findings, it had to be halted. But a second dig did happen in October of 2020, where at least 12 unmarked coffins were found. As of now, that's the breakthrough that they've had, although they have to continue to investigate these murders because it's possible that the gravesite that they found was from another major historical event, like an influenza outbreak. So there's no saying if it's actually from the massacre, but they're going to continue to investigate. But for many people in the community, it felt like a hallelujah moment because it brought on the hope that now they can start to heal and be the beginning of real positive change. And still, the Black community demands an actual criminal investigation into who did this. Even though most of those people are dead at this point, they still deserve names and justice, you know? Yeah, they deserve an accurate historical record of what happened. Yeah, because there are pictures from this time of white men holding guns standing in front of burning buildings. Like, they're... (laughs) There are literal pictures of people like pretty much flaunting their involvement. So the fact that there hasn't been any kind of real investigation into this is laughable. It's insanely disappointing. Deneen Brown, who is a black author for the Washington Post, said stories have power and if they're told they can change the future and provide healing. And actually, the HBO TV show Watchmen had spurred the conversation about the massacre again for the Tulsa education system. Basically, this TV show opens with a very graphic depiction of what the massacre may have looked like for the first few minutes of the show as like a cold open to this TV show. And it's shocking. I mean, it's definitely impactful. And Deborah A. Gist, the superintendent of Tulsa Public Schools, admitted that despite being a student of the same school district system she now oversees, she never learned about the massacre herself until she became an educator. As of fall of 2020, it was supposed to be officially incorporated into lesson plans for Oklahoma's public curriculum. And Deborah A. Gist also said, Do I have complete faith in the school system to properly educate students on on Tulsa's sordid past? Nope. 
but it's a step in the right direction that at the very least provides both students and parents with a gateway to educate themselves further on a gruesome chapter of black history. Because like we said in the beginning, the problem with so many of these important historic events is that they're glossed over due to their horrific nature or just whitewashed and completely taught wrong. Or not taught at all. Or not taught at all. Susan Faust, a recently retired librarian who helped teachers develop the fifth grade curriculum for teaching the race massacre at Emerson Elementary School in Tulsa, agreed and said it needs to be told and the teachers have to be the ones that teach it to tell us that we can't talk about racism and have to make it so that nobody feels guilty. I mean, there's, there has to be some understanding of how human nature is and how communities have to support each other. Because there was a conversation that was happening of, yes, we can talk about it, but also we don't want to make white students feel guilty. So we shouldn't. This is, this is just like inconsistent with logic. Like It was just another excuse. You, well, I get it. But yeah. you, you have to understand that if you're a white person being taught this, that this is not you. Like right. it might have been your ancestors or somebody that you were related to, but you have to be able to like learn, acknowledge, and admit that this was horrific, even if you were related. And then it's not your fault. Of course. Like you shouldn't feel guilty, but you should be able to be taught this. Of course. This is, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like you can't not teach something because some people might feel guilty for a stupid reason. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean. Deneen Brown said it, like I said earlier, I quoted her earlier, stories have power, and if they're told, they can change the future and provide healing. It's so incredibly important to educate yourself on these stories of the past and Black history because you have to be a part of positive change. The only way to make positive change is to acknowledge the past, no matter how hard it is, like no matter how uncomfortable it may be. Point being, there has to be justice for the descendants who survived and those who were killed. Yeah. And I mean, that's that on that. Yeah, $33 million in two days. I mean, that was just in 1921. Like, that was the damage that happened right then and there, but it's lasted 100 years. Yeah. So it's a lot to talk about. And I just think it's important to know about these things. So I wanted to talk about it. But uh, anyway, if you would like to donate to some good organizations we have, I will link some in the episode's description. There is the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission uh, on greenwoodrising.org. I will leave a a link for that one. And I'll also leave a link for blacklives.help, which contains an index of charities and fundraisers related to the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's just like a bunch of fundraisers and you can pretty much choose any of them and make any kind of donation as little as like, you know, 50 cents. So, but anyway, I think I'm going to just leave it at that this week. I think the good thing should be everyone just going out there and educating yourself on black history. And that's that on that. Amen. I hope you guys have a great week and just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.